You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham, and I'll be your host today. And your co-host, Ryan O. And so that makes this uh, Why We Do What We Do. And we are so excited today, Ryan. Yes, so we have not one but two guests, really. I mean, we have our first live recording with Miranda. She's yeah, not really a guest. She's a part of the she's a part of the project. You get to hear her voice every week. Yes, but it's for yeah. So the first time we're recording live with Miranda, and we also have a guest, Jonathan, with us. Yeah. So Miranda, I totally messed that up. <laughs> it's totally okay. I'm just excited to finally uh, uh, get get to say different things besides the credits. So. All right, cool. So yeah, Miranda, uh, why don't you, um, yeah, intro, you, you're really uh, organized this one. So if you if you want to go ahead and intro Jonathan and, and kick off the interview. Absolutely. So um, we're talking with Dr. Jonathan Tarbox today, hopefully going to delve into some interesting ideas around the mind and experience and, and how we kind of uh, approach life. So uh, Jonathan, could you go ahead and actually say your name and uh, tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you very much for having me as a guest on your uh, podcast. I think it's a great opportunity, and uh, and I appreciate the mission, and, and I appreciate what you all are doing. Um, so, yeah, my name is Jonathan Tarbox, and I'm the program director of the Masters of Science in Applied Behavior Analysis program at the University of Southern California, or USC. Um, so I'm a professor there, program director, um, and I also am the director of research for a clinic called First Steps for Kids in the Los Angeles area. Uh, where I help uh, design and, and manage uh, research initiatives there. Wonderful. Has there ever been a cooler title than Master of Science? <laughs> Sounds like that's like an elite status right there. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Um, so just to kick off, uh, there's there definitely tends to be this kind of cultural perception where we idealize the mind and the power of the mind. Could you describe that a little bit and how you perceive it? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, that's maybe one of the foundational pieces of our entire culture for the last, you know, few thousand years, all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And um, and the mind has really been given this sort of like super uh, almost godlike status uh, in how we view human behavior and, uh, and human civilization, uh, so much so that it's even, uh, you know, according to most religious traditions, uh, what separates us from all of the other critters on the planet is that we have this incredible capacity for reason and emotion and all of these things that the other other animals don't. Um, so it's really um, almost. I mean, you know, and if you ask anybody, well, why didn't you why didn't you get something done that you were supposed to? The explanation is always something in the mind, right, or or something in the heart. Like I was too tired, or I was too frustrated, or I was too mad, or or I didn't know what I was supposed to do. There's always some explanation uh, that comes back to the mind. Um, and if you if you want to know why someone did a great job, same thing, right? The explanation will always go back to the mind. Well, he's just, you know, he has really great character or he has great ethics or he has great morals or, or something like that. So, um, yeah, it's just sort of um, so ubiquitous that it's almost so obvious that it doesn't even need to be said. But at the same time, I feel like this tendency is so ubiquitous that we don't even notice it anymore. Like we don't notice that we're ascribing this incredible level of power to the human mind. It's just kind of what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And you and you discussed a little bit there, you know, kind of what this can look like on a day to day basis. Um, it definitely seems like something that can affect how we go about activity uh, in our day to day lives. And what do you what do you kind of see um, as far as how people 
uh, act when they kind of place this importance on the mind? Um, what does their experience look like? Sure. Well, it's funny because it's one of these things that I can give my sort of expert opinion as a researcher and and a behavior scientist, but it's also kind of uh, a common sense experience that all humans have every day, right? Like literally today, probably everyone uh, engaged in this podcast, everyone listening to this podcast had something happen earlier today that was challenging and that their mind got involved and said something like, I'm not good enough, or I can't do this, or I'm too nervous, or I'm too tired. Um, And so it's just human to struggle with the mind. I mean, the mind pops in, gets in the way, and generally speaking, people believe what their mind tells them, right? So generally speaking, when your mind jumps in and gives you some advice, <laughs> uh, people tend to believe it. Like if I have the thought that I'm too nervous to get this done, people usually think then I can't do it. I shouldn't do it, right? Um, so it's sort of, uh, I would say that it, it sort of just intrudes itself into everything that humans do on a daily basis. So you seem to have a counter uh, way uh, to approach um, what we <laughs> You're do. That, yeah. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What so, do you What do you uh, think? What do you, What What is maybe something that is more efficient or, or better for us? Sure. Well, well, it's interesting because there's kind of converging strands coming from very different um, sources that are actually kind of saying the same thing. So the last couple thousand years of Buddhism, for example, uh, that focused on transcendent meditation, a, a big goal of that was to decrease the role that the mind plays in your daily life. And, and there was all kinds of religious and spiritual implications of that. Um, that I'm not even going to go into. Um, but it's interesting because a lot of what that meditation practice, uh, mindfulness in particular, that it was trying to um, sort of engender in people also happens to be a lot of the same things that behavioral science, both uh, pure behavior science and also neuroscience, are also coming upon uh, from scientific directions. And that is um, kind of getting at decreasing the volume, if you will, of unhelpful mental events. So uh, unhelpful thoughts and emotions and feelings that that really honestly do more to get in your way than they do to help you on a daily basis. Multiple different scientific traditions are now getting trying to zero in on procedures for kind of just turning the volume down on those. Um, and if you want to put it in, in real lay terms, honestly, just kind of taking your mind less seriously. For sure. I, I mean, that sounds like an oversimplification, no. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I don't think I don't I think you're right. I don't think it, it's um, it's simple, but but figuring out how to do it is a whole other thing. So what are your thoughts as far as, you know, <laughs> what are your thoughts? Imagine that <laughs> um, as far as some actual attitudes or, or practices um, to kind of to utilize to be able to move away from that. Sure, sure. So uh, one of the first things I like to think about is to sort of try to distinguish between when uh, problem solving and really intense mental activity is good for you, right? Like it's adaptive and it's helpful to get something done that really needs to be done versus all the rest of the time. So when do you really need to engage your mind and think uh, intensely? Well, let's say when you're making a plan, right? Or you're solving a problem. If you get a flat tire, you probably shouldn't just zone out, right? You probably should focus carefully on what the problem is, keep everyone safe, find the spare tire, find the jack, right? If you're planning for a job interview, you probably should very intently focus, like make sure my Vita is updated, make sure I'm dressed nicely, I'm you know, not picking my nose or whatever, right? So th- there's things that you do that you need to do that involve intense mental problem solving. Um, And it's adaptive and it's good for you and we don't want that to go away. But I will suggest to you and to your audience that the vast, vast, vast majority of our waking hours in our life are not those situations. We're usually not 
problem-solving our way out of some disaster. We're usually just going about our daily life. So I think the first step is to kind of even learn to distinguish between those two different situations um, and, uh, and, and, and start to sort of be pragmatic about it. Like when is um, mental problem-solving helpful versus when might it be reasonable to kind of turn down the volume on that and take some other strategies? And I want to jump in just really quick because on what you just said there of – what I what I heard in part of what you said was that although we're not we're not most of the time in situations where we are you know having that immediate plan like it's survival right now it's the problem solving the the immediate um, thing that we're dealing with in the moment what can happen is that um, we with our language and with our minds we create that context as if we were in constant survival mode I mean that's what I was hearing in sort of what you were saying yes right? yeah absolutely and so uh, uh, people in the um, acceptance and commitment therapy literature talk a lot about the mind as a problem-solving machine so it's constantly looking out for problems and constantly trying to find problems to solve and when you think about it uh, during the course of human evolution that was really useful when there really were constant dangers right when we we're cave people we were always looking over our shoulders to look out avoid the tiger always looking for over our shoulders to find the rabbit to catch it and eat it you know we're having to make tools out of sticks and it really was constant threat of death like 24 hours a day right so that was actually really adaptive to be constantly searching out problems now look where we live now right <laughs> there's very very few at least in you know sort of middle class western civilization very very few disasters that are right on the cusp of happening um, they're not non-existent but they're very very um, rare and so most of the time, we're kind of going through our daily routine. And so there really isn't any need for our mind to create a disaster. And yet it's so good at it, it can't possibly help it. It just does it. It's just human nature to try to try to find problems even where there aren't any. So we talked a little bit about what someone's experience, what our actions look like when we're stuck in our minds. Um, what what does this counter approach kind of offer? What what can our what can our experience what can our lives look like if we were to maybe turn things down a little sure. bit? Sure. So uh, so there's a couple couple different uh, things I might want to comment on with that. One is uh, my background is uh, in behavioral science or behavioral psychology, and so uh, one of the earliest things that I learned was this perspective that the mind isn't in charge of everything. It doesn't control what you do. The mind is another part of your environment in which you live, and it definitely matters a great deal, but it's not sort of a cause and effect, push-pull, switch on or off relationship between what you think and what you do. Um, and so that's a little bit different perspective. So even first just kind of contemplating that perspective, I think can be really useful. So what, what would your life be like if your mind wasn't in charge? What if you were in charge instead of your mind? Uh, and what if your mind was one thing that you can listen to amongst many other things, right? There's birds tweeting outside. There's your dad that you can call for advice. There's a DJ on the radio. Um, there's lots and lots of sources of stimulation or things happening in your life. And your mind talking to you, to you talking to yourself or thinking is one of those. It's just one of many. It's not sort of the primary or master source. So... If we are to then try and turn down those things, what can we actually end up experiencing um, for the sure, better? Sure. You know, how is this beneficial for us? I mean, we've gotten very, very far, obviously, um, you know, utilizing uh, our minds to to problem solve. So what? So why? Why should we do it? Why? Why should we turn those things down? Yeah. Okay. Great question. I love that. Well, first of all, there's a decent amount of research showing that the more wrapped up you are in struggling with your thoughts and feelings. 
the harder time you have with other things that matter in life. So for example, um, folks who uh, have greater uh, depression symptomology also spend a lot more time struggling with their thoughts and feelings. Folks who have greater anxiety also have spend a lot more time struggling with their thoughts and feelings. Uh, folks whose life is really uh, diminished by chronic pain, so they're missing a lot of work, they're not getting off the couch to play with their kids, they're, um, they're experiencing decrements in quality of life due to their chronic pain, are also spending a lot of time struggling with their thoughts and feelings. So that's sort of the first piece, is that there's a pretty well-research established correlation between the more you struggle with your mind, uh, the less uh, highly you're going to score on a variety of things that matter in terms of living a, a good quality life. So that's kind of the first piece. But the second piece, um, and it's interesting, uh, once you start uh, practicing this stuff yourself, you'll start to um, actually run into a lot of uh, just sort of practical um, examples in your everyday life. So the very first, like easiest thing you can possibly do is have a conversation with someone that you care about and literally just practice paying attention to them versus thinking about something else and just switch back and forth every minute. Do a minute of actually being present and paying attention and then switch back to a minute of obsessing about whatever you're stressed about, whether it's your job or a difficult relationship or the bills you have to pay and just see see the difference. <laughs> and, 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 you know, may, maybe let the person know you're gonna do this so you're not just messing with them, right? Um, but you'll see, you'll, I mean, you'll immediately feel the difference. You're gonna go from having a meaningful, enjoyable, like fulfilling interaction with someone that you care about to feeling stressed out, feeling negative, uh, and by the way, ruining the interaction with the person that you care about, right? Um, another really just really easy bread and butter one is try eating some chocolate. Get some chocolate ice cream, assuming you love chocolate ice cream, and take a bite and take, take some time to really savor it and eat it really slowly. Just let it melt in your mouth without biting it or chewing it or anything um, and really pay attention to it. And when your mind starts thinking about something else, redirect your mind back to the flavor of the ice cream, the feeling of coldness in your mouth, um, the texture of the ice cream on your tongue. Um, okay. And then notice it's probably the best ice cream you've ever had in your life because you're right there. You're paying attention to the ice cream. You're not stuck in your mind struggling with thoughts about lots of other things uh, that are challenging and aversive and upsetting. Now the next day, try it again, but worry about a topic that really bugs you a lot and think about someone that you're really mad at and write a let, right? Do something else. Struggle. Get, get back in your mind stuck eat the same ice cream, the same amount of ice cream, and then ask yourself, how good did it taste afterwards? And I guarantee you there's a huge difference. It sounds, it sounds like that there's, when you were talking about the interaction with other people, where you really notice you're paying attention to them. And, uh, and I definitely, I know for myself, how often I drift in and out of conversations when I'm, I'm, I'm one who's supposed to be listening. Right. And when I am noticing that I drift and I become really present to the conversation, it changes dramatically the experience that I have. And so I think that you probably, that's sort of what I heard in what you were saying was that um, being present in the moment will not only change like your experience with what they're saying, but it will also change then how you react to what they're saying and then how they experience totally. you as a listener. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, another great way to test this out is just do a good job versus a bad job staying on your phone in a social situation, right? Like one of the, one of the easiest, lowest effort ways to get stuck in your mind is just pick up the iPhone and stare at the screen, check your email, check all your social media. Did somebody like your post? Did you get another message from the person? Did someone swipe left or right on you? Or, you know what I mean? Do all of that in a social situation. And that'll, that'll give you a firsthand experience of exactly what we're talking about here. Can we talk a little bit about technology? 
I, sure. I think that's super relevant. And I know that a lot of people who, you know, listen to podcasts, they they tend to be involved with a lot of media, whether that's, you know, reading social media, getting on Reddit, getting on news sites. And um, what, what do you, how do you feel as far as um, a more mindful approach uh, to, to taking in the world through media? Um, how does sure. this kind of fit in with that? Yeah, great question. Well, I better have something positive to say if I'm on a podcast. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, no. def- definitely try and make sure the podcast, you know, you're really pumping, pumping us up here. <laughs> just kidding. It's just this podcast. That's all you should do. That's yeah, really, this answer. one in particular. Well, <laughs> well, you know, I think, um, and I'm and I'm just going to say right off the bat, as a, re- as a researcher, I'm no expert on um, the scientific aspect of that. And uh, I'm sure there has been research done already just in the last five years on uh, the effects of social media on social relations and things like that. But without being aware of that research, I will say, um, I think that social media and greater access to various types of media and technology is like any other really powerful stimulus that gets introduced into a culture. And so if you have a gun laying around and no one has been trained on gun safety, people are going to get dead for sure, right? Um, if you have lots of really p- tasty food laying around and no one, and no one teaches you about nutrition or exercise, everyone is going to eat too much, right? And, and so I think that... Um, that I think that social media and, and technology is a lot like that, that it's it's very, it's an intense source of stimulation. And I think that it's incredible. It's changing the world already. There's no question about it. Um, and the the um, potential for collaboration and dissemination of information, especially science, I mean, just, just the ability to access almost any scientific information almost instantly now has changed my life completely as a scientist. Because of course, I was doing research before all of this happened, and now I'm still doing research, and it's the difference is amazing, right? Um, and at the same time, it's like any other addictive behavior. Like, we've got to be really careful. We've got to watch it carefully. And I think that we need to look at it uh, with distrust, right? Like, when you when you look at a bottle of beer, let's say, and you don't have a drinking problem yet, uh, and you have a beer, that's great, right? That makes life a little better. That's incredible. For the social effects, we share a glass of wine to celebrate our anniversary, whatever it is, and that's incredible. But we also wouldn't just hand a five-year-old a bottle of beer and say, good luck, kid, you know? Um, we take that seriously, right? We monitor it carefully. We teach children how to manage alcohol intake, and we teach them how to notice if they're drinking too much and how to prevent that. And I think that it's, you know, probably somewhat the same thing with technology. That it's it's serious business, and we should look at it with suspicion, and, and we should look at it carefully, like a like a powerful, powerful weapon, really. Yeah, I like that. I like that point because there's. Uh there's a guy that I follow um, in the entrepreneurship world, and he says essentially like the technology isn't what's necessarily the root of the problem, and uh, it what it does is just really kind of exposes us. And I look at it, you know, it just shows what's kind of underlying what's going on there. And there's also this notion of like it's like it's not going away, right? Like I mean, it's around. So let's look at it for what it is. Is it good, bad, under what conditions, and like where 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 can we go with it? Well, and I think to piggyback off of your point, it's even if we were to like say we're going to attack the problem that um, the technology and social media has created and our being present and our being involved in our lives by changing the technology. Well, okay, something else is going to come around then that's going to that's going to do it uh, the same thing in a different way. And so I think that sort of what it sounds like with your approach is like looking at this psychologically in terms of where we use these tools as um uh, as you know for, as people as clinicians and we give them to the people that we work with and then it doesn't matter what comes up that is going to come into their lives and distract them away from their lives if, if if they solve the technology issue and the next thing comes along if they know how to do this and step back and um and be mindful of those things then 
um, then that it's not going to create the same problem that we had already. You know, it wouldn't be it's, uh, that whole t topographical cure versus the more systemic one. Yeah, I think it's a really great point. So uh, it, I mean, it could even be looked at as sort of a behavior problem. Like right now, we like as a culture, we have a behavior problem because we have this intense, intense source of stimulation that we haven't learned how to moderate and how to control. And so we're all just binging now, basically, right? Some worse than others, like some have legitimate, you know, social media addictions that are ruining their lives. Most of us aren't that bad, thank goodness. Um, but still, as a society and in a culture, we haven't figured out how to teach ourselves, our children, each other, how to moderate that reasonably. And maybe there will be some technological advances that could be helpful at least, like things like that self-monitor how much time, you, you know, with eye detection and things like that, there probably will be an ability to monitor how much have, have I been looking at my phone, how many times have I activated or looked up, you know, and maybe people would set goals for themselves. Like maybe I'm going to spend no more than 30 minutes a day looking at my screen. Um, and when I'm getting closer to that, maybe my phone lets me know, hey, you're actually getting kind of close. So you might want to <laughs> chill out a little bit if you want to stay under the limit, you know. Um, but still, at the end of the day, it's still a behavior problem. It's not like that technology would fix it. It's still we as a culture need to take responsibility for teaching our ch each other, ourselves, our children, um, how to moderate that behavior. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. I think it's telling that, yeah, there are already some apps um, that help to monitor and, and keep you on track with that. Uh, it's something that's so new and we're already trying to, we're already aware of how it can actually impede our lives being lived fully and we are trying to address it, but. Yeah, I use one. I'm scrolling through my data. Uh, <laughs> my lowest in the last month was three hours and eight minutes in a day. This is on screen time. It doesn't necessarily mean that, like I do a lot of like text waiting for the text and it's up. So it's, it's inflated my, and <laughs> sounds bad. My highest <laughs> are like pushing 10. However, those are like Sundays. Jeez. So hold on, hold on, let me defend myself here. <laughs> Was binge watching um, all of Game of Thrones in one day. <laughs> no. So those are days where like it's usually a Sunday. I've watched two, three hours of YouTube. Um, but I use it for collaboration like completely. And I don't have like a my life right now is not a situation where I go home and have a family life and that sort of stuff. It's just like a lot of stuff like these projects and things are very fun to me. And that's what I kind of do. And there's a lot of market analysis that I can do as well on these. So it's, it's insane. But I, I don't feel like, yes, it does impede when I'm around other things that I care about and I have mm -hmm. to be really careful of those. Um, but in the day to day, like that, it doesn't necessarily impact that much, which is kind of crazy to say with the numbers sometimes. Cool. Definitely. So Dr. Tarbox, I wonder if you have any sort of illustrations or anecdotes or kind of ways you can help us, uh, wrap our minds. Oh goodness. See, um, <laughs> wrap our minds it's all right, around. It's, all right. <laughs> it's automatic. Isn't <laughs> it can't though? make it go away. Yeah. Um, yeah, just help us understand a little bit more, um, just this whole idea of, of getting out of our minds and, and being more present. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the sort of technical term for it uh, in the acceptance and commitment therapy literature is um, cognitive diffusion. And diffusion simply means just getting unstuck from your mind, right? Um, so building a more sort of flexible relationship with your mind um, so that when you're interacting, and this sounds almost crazy, right? Like you're detached from your own mind. Um, but it, it really is the idea of treating your mind like it's just another source of advice out of, you know, one of many. It's not the only one. You don't have to follow it. Um, and that it's not you. It's part of you. It's a really important part of you, but it's not the same as you. It's an aspect of you. It's something you do. It doesn't define you or who you are. 
Um, so anyway, so uh, some practical strategies. So uh, some of these cognitive diffusion techniques are very interesting, and I think maybe you can roughly divide them into ones that um, kind of are humorous and try to add something kind of funny and silly to something that might be difficult that's happening in your mind versus ones that kind of try to just um, neutralize or sort of make more variable or sort of just uh, turn down the intensity or potency of what's happening in your mind. Um, so first, maybe we can start with uh, the latter category. Um, so there, there's um, exercises that are like Let's say you're running. Uh, so basically, uh, we can just come up with situations where your mind's telling you something difficult that you'd like to still persist through, okay? So let's say you're going for a run, and, and you care about running, and you're training, and, um, and you get to the point where you're starting to feel pretty fatigued, uh, and you're feeling some pain, you're feeling some exhaustion, and your mind starts telling you things like, I can't take this, I'm too tired, I have to stop and walk, I have to rest, I'm going to get an injury, right? Um, and some of those things might be useful. Like if you really do feel like you're going to get injured, good, <laughs> like stop and walk, right? Um, but if you're really trying to work on endurance and you feel tired, but you're not getting hurt, when your mind tells you, I have to stop and walk, well, maybe, but maybe not, right? So there's some different techniques. You can do things like um, you can imagine uh, the words that your mind just told you on a balloon and watch the balloon float away into space. And if your mind tells you the same thing, your mind might even say, that was a stupid exercise. I still feel like I have to uh, you know, t stop and walk. Well, okay, write that on the balloon. Imagine that was a stupid exercise on the balloon and watch that balloon float away, right? And now maybe your mind says, um, this is ridiculous, this isn't working. Great, write that on the balloon, watch it float away. The idea is it's getting you to engage in some other behaviors other than just obsessing on, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. So if you think about the old way of doing things, the way that society kind of trains us to do things is whatever our mind says, take it seriously and pretty much do it. <laughs> Follow, you know, the, the mind's the boss, do what the boss says. So this, this other approach, this diffusion approach, is getting you to do a variety of different responses to what your mind says. Um, other metaphors are uh, leaves on a stream. So when your mind tells you something difficult, imagine that that's written on a leaf and watch the leaf float down the stream. And the next thing your mind says, same thing, put it on the next leaf and watch that float down the stream. Um, you can imagine your thoughts are the codes on a stock market ticker tape, right? Running across the bottom of a, the news screen on your TV. Um, you can imagine that your, mind, that your thoughts are written on clouds floating by in the sky. Um, but the important thing here isn't to follow any particular procedure or exercise. We're not just kind of memorizing procedures. The important thing is to build the overall generalized ability to be more flexible with your own mind. So when we train people on these techniques, we're not trying to get them to do the techniques we train them. We're trying to get them to the point where they can invent their own new techniques, right? So let's say someone really likes hockey or something. Well, they might uh, imagine their difficult thoughts being announced by the hockey announcer during a hockey game or something, whatever, right? It doesn't matter. The idea is come up with some other way to interact with your thoughts other than the normal, rigid difficult, aversive way of doing it. Do you uh, do you have a story like of, of some time that you've done this either with yourself or someone that you wouldn't mind sharing um, sure. where, where this exercise, uh, how it sort of worked for that sure, situation? Yeah. So, um, yeah, well, uh, so I do a lot of public speaking mo more than once a month now. Um, and so I've pretty, you know, I've gotten pretty well used to it, I suppose, right? I suppose I'm probably less, have less anxiety than most folks who do it less, you know, one does kind of get used to stuff, I guess. Um, and yet still, I get very nervous before I give a talk. I mean, it's just, again, pretty much human nature. And so uh, one method I use is saying, thanks, mind. 
<laughs> so like walking walking into the auditorium, I might look around and, and you go, oh my God, there's a couple hundred people here. Like, that's really scary. Thanks, mind. I appreciate that. That was really helpful thought. <laughs> and then maybe, you know, the next thing my mind tells me is I really should have practiced more. Like I should have practiced my talk more. Yeah, cool. Thanks for that. Appreciate that, mind. That was awesome. <laughs> right. Uh, and then maybe, right. And it, it, so it doesn't make these thoughts go away, but what it does is just turn them down a little bit. So instead of the mind being this all-knowing, wise person scolding you for not doing a good enough job, your mind almost turns into sort of like a joker who's hanging out with you, messing with you. Sort of like a, maybe like a silly heckler instead of like God telling you you're bad or something. Does that make sense? And maybe if the normal way of doing it isn't working, just imagine someone walking next to you, dancing and singing a silly song of your thoughts, right? I mean, the point is it doesn't really matter. You just come up with any other way of engaging your difficult, challenging thoughts other than the way you normally do it. I guess I find it interesting within everything that you're saying um, that essentially in order to be able to get away from unhelpful thoughts, you really have to actually engage with your thoughts in a very intentional way. Yeah, and that's uh, a really, a really, really great point that I'm really happy you mentioned. Um, so there's a whole other piece, um, a whole other area called acceptance, and that's the idea that the the harder you try to avoid difficult thoughts, the more you're actually making those difficult thoughts part of your experience. So like, let's say you feel nervous and you have the thought, I can't feel nervous. If I feel too nervous, I'm going to have a panic attack. And so what do you do? You try really hard not to feel nervous, right? And when was the last time that worked for anybody, right? It, it doesn't work because all you're doing is just thinking more about being nervous and trying to avoid it. So Diffusion techniques are the opposite. You actually move towards the aversive thought rather than trying to control it or make it go away. Um, You make room for it and you engage it directly. And what it actually does is it it makes it lose some of its power. Um, Another um, example is uh, uh, Carmen Luciano, who's a brilliant researcher in Spain, has done some very, very interesting work where they have people do really difficult tasks in the laboratory that are painful. So for example, holding your hand in a bucket of ice water, it's called a cold presser task. And they look at how long is someone willing to keep their hand in the bucket of ice water. And all humans will take their hand out eventually, right? So it's a matter of how long are they willing to do it. Um, And what she has found in her research is if you tell the participants, try your hardest not to feel cold, they'll actually take their hand out sooner. Whereas if you tell the participant, you know what, you are going to feel cold. There's no way you can escape from it. Make some room for it. Imagine the feeling of cold is like wrapping around your body and in, in, in encasing your whole body in a cold blanket. Now imagine, you know, in other words, it's just doing something else other than trying to avoid the thought that you're cold and the feeling of cold. And the folks that get that training, the diffusion and acceptance training, their scores go way up and they're able to hold their hand in the ice water for way longer. And of course, you're probably thinking, well, who cares if someone can hold their hand in ice water, right? But the, the purpose of that research is that it's a functional analog to situations in real life that really are difficult, right? So overcoming some challenge in life that you think is impossible, but you really stick to it and you stick through it no matter how hard it is, is kind of like keeping your hand in a bucket of ice water longer. One thing that um, occurred to me in, in some of what you're saying is it sounds like you're, you're sort of treating the thoughts that you have um, and you said like turning down the volume, but in the way you're moving toward them. And an, one analogy I had was thinking of like, if you think you see like, I'm thinking of um, like a horror movie or like a little kid who thinks they see a monster and then they like actually go toward it and find out it's just the clothes we're sitting in a particular way. And that actually, yeah. and so that was one, one metaphor I had. But the other thing I was thinking um, in terms of how uh, to maybe approach this conceptually is that it's, it's like looking at your thoughts and recognizing, hey, these aren't, 
these aren't literally true. These aren't things like the statement that I have about if, if I do a bad job, everyone's going to hate me or whatever it is you're saying to yourself. That's not actually a fact. Um, it's sort of saying like uh, stepping back away from that and saying uh, and diminishing the, the power that that has by acknowledging that it is just a thought. It's just something that sort of happened to you and is not necessarily the way the world actually works. Yeah, absolutely. And that that really is the goal of all of this diffusion work is to kind of train you might think of it as like taking your mind too seriously is like a bad habit. And we want to replace that bad habit with a new good habit. And the new good habit is treating your mind sort of lightheartedly. So treating it as just a thought, like you said. Um, and really, I mean, you can get philosophical if you want on exactly what a thought is. Is it a chemical thing in your brain? Is it behavior? If you're a behavior analyst, maybe you believe that. Um, if you're a neuroscientist, maybe it's brain activity, whatever it is. But the bottom line is, in our actual experience, daily experience as humans, it's just a thought. <laughs> and, and so there, there's exercises where you can get people to say thoughts or say things that are the opposite of what's true, right? And so that immediately puts them in context with uh, how silly it is to take thoughts as though they're literally true. So you might, might have them, you know, someone who is able to stand up and sit down, you might have them say with real conviction, I am unable to stand up. And then they stand up, right? Yeah. And of course, that seems kind of trite and stupid. But actually, again, it's a functional analog of the problem that we're all faced with on a daily basis is treating our thoughts as though they're literally true, as opposed to kind of, I don't want to say over-dramatized, but really that kind of is what we're doing is we're sort of over-dramatizing um, the power and the importance of our thoughts. When you think about it, it's almost egotistical. Like how <laughs> brilliant do we think we are that our thoughts are always true, right? right. <laughs> <laughs> it's absurd, That's right? awesome. Well, and that reminds me of, uh, of when you notice maybe in a conversation you use the same word so many times it stops. it starts to sound really funny in your mouth and in your yeah. ears and you're just like, milk. Yeah, milk. Exactly. That's a weird word, milk. <laughs> you know, and, and so that's one of the diffusion exercises. It's just repeating a word over and over, and it comes from you know a hundred years ago in psychology. I think it might be Titchener. I'm, I'm blanking now on who the original researcher was, um, but yeah, where, where they found that if a word had a particular function, all you have to do is just say the word over and over and over, and it no longer has that function. So if a word makes you mad, repeat it fifty times. It doesn't make you mad anymore. If a word like lemon makes you salivate, repeat it fifty times. You're not salivating anymore. Um, and some words actually you kind of forget the meaning, right? If yeah. you say milk, 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 it starts, <laughs> what is it, what, right? Um, and so, yeah, that, that's actually one of the, the exercises used in the ACT literature is just if you're having a difficult thought, repeat it over and over and over. And when you think about it, that gets back to this issue of acceptance too. That's the exact opposite of avoidance. You're really engaging that thought by doing it over and over and over and over and over. Um, but it does, um, and it's probably partially due to the uh, behavior, basic behavioral learning principle of habituation. Mm -hmm. And there's 100 years of psychology research showing that if you just present a stimulus over and over, that stimulus starts to lose its power. And so thoughts are part of our environment as stimuli. And so that's probably part of why that, that works. I, I thought I did have one question going back to something you had said earlier is if you had if you could distinguish or if you saw any kind of distinction between sort of what you do 
and um, cognitive behavior science? Um, or like, how do you see any differences there? Or how do you think about those two things as they exist in the world? Yeah, yeah, I love that question. So, uh, so I'm I'm kind of unique because I'm a behavior analyst who's really interested in these topics that sound very cognitive. Most folks in sort of hardcore behavior science are looking at more relatively simplistic behaviors that are really obviously behavior. A lot of the stuff that I research and, and am interested in, most people would say, well, I'm not sure if that's behavior. Maybe that's the mind, you know, or maybe that's the brain. Like, what is that? Um, and that's kind of what gets me interested or keeps me interested on a daily basis. Um, and so I would say that I am very interested in working with cognitive neuroscientists. I'm very interested in doing brain scans and doing, uh, you know, neurochemical work, things like that. Um, I think that would provide a, uh, a more uh, richer and more nuanced overall picture of the human being as an organism uh, with a brain that participates in all of this. Um, my personal philosophical perspective is that that isn't a replacement for treating what we do with our mind as learned behavior. So is the, is the brain critical? Absolutely. Are you going to have thinking if you get rid of the brain? No, right? In fact, there's parts of the brain that, that get injured in a car accident and language is gone or this function is gone or that function is gone. So the brain is absolutely critical and the brain is absolutely critical to everything else that we do other than thinking, right? So we tend to, as a society, put thinking in the brain, but other skills or other behaviors we put in other places. Um, and I just haven't found that perspective very useful. And so I, I, my sort of my, uh, my sort of bias is what we do with our minds is very affected by our learning history. And so what we do with our minds is amenable to change due to our con contact with our environment. If that wasn't true, we wouldn't have schools, right? The whole point of schools is to teach people to use their minds. That's what education is, right? Um, and so that's sort of my contribution, is treating mental activity as learned behavior that we can change and that we can modify. And that's not to suggest that everyone is capable of every single possible mental capacity. We're not going to make everybody Einstein, right? Just like we're not going to make everybody Michael Jordan. Um, we're not going to make everybody the Dalai Lama or Martin Luther King, right? Um, and yet, with whatever equipment biology and uh, genetics have given us, with whatever biological and neurological equipment we're bringing to the table, there's a range of functioning and there's a range of mental activity that we can learn and that can be shaped and become more flexible or more rigid uh, in some cases. Um, and so that's kind of, I don't know if that's a helpful answer, but that's sort of my, sort of my perspective on the sort of neuroscience piece. No, that's great. And um, so something I'd actually, I had thought about um, and I was going to bring up as sort of going back to the idea of the diffusion stuff. I had long before I was in this field, although I was interested in psychology at the time, I read the series of fantasy books. And in the, in the books, there was this race of people who were known as like the greatest warriors. And one of the reasons that they were so great at warriors is because they were so good at they, um, they could tolerate pain so well. And while they actually discussed in the book, I thought was so interesting was that the way that they were able to tolerate pain is that they, they said like they let it in and they said that like they make it a part of them and they, 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 um, they're like, you know, this is making me stronger. This is, um, you know, I'm going to own it and let that be part of the experience and really stay with it. And even though they would express the same physical emotions, like, so they wouldn't give up information if they were being tortured. Not that I'm advocating anybody go get tortured, but, um, you know, they wouldn't have, if, if they were caught, and again, this is a fantasy series, that they would, um, like, like, yeah, bring it on, like, do your worst, and, and they would, and they deal with it, and so they would never give up information, and they also just, they didn't experience pain in the same way, because they weren't trying to avoid the experience that they couldn't get out of, 
that had a huge profound impact on me. And I remember thinking like I'd go to the dentist or something and be like, all right, I'm just, I'm like, I'm letting it in. I'm going to let, I'm going to be right here in this moment. I'm going to try not to, to get out of this moment. Um, and how different of an experience I had from there. And then it was, it was so interesting coming into, um, learning more and more about psychology and discovering like, wow, there's actually like science behind this too. That's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I, I, I'm not familiar with that fantasy series, but it sounds like a really good uh, example of a, a lot of the processes that we're talking about. Uh, for sure, the acceptance piece, where instead of trying to avoid feeling bad or feeling discomfort or pain, physical pain in this case, uh, they're taking it in. And they're, and then also a piece that we didn't talk about yet is values. And so it sounds like what they're doing is kind of transforming the function of pain into something positive. So yes, it still hurts. That's not going to go away. And it means that I'm doing something great. Uh, so for maybe in this case, I'm being patriotic to my tribe or my race or whatever it is, or I'm protecting my, you know, whatever the fantasy series was, right? Uh, but you'll see that in, um, in people, you know, in people in our society as well. So for example, members of the armed services are willing to put themselves in incredibly dangerous situations and suffer great, great deprivation and terror, largely or at least partially because they're serving some greater purpose. There's, there's a verbally constructed value there that while you may or may not agree with it, and you may not agree the means by which they're doing it or anything else, that it has, it has that function for them, or at least for many people. Yeah. Um, and again, um, um, you know, running, uh, I keep going back to running cause I love running, but, uh, but it's another example where, you, you know, really to be uh, a semi-decent runner, you need to choose pain over and over and over, day in and day out. Maybe not like the type of pain associated with acute injury. Hopefully you avoid that. But it just hurts to get better and better at endurance exercise or better and better at whatever the physical exercise is. Um, and you need to experience psychological pain. You need to feel lonely if you're going to be out there for hours. You need to feel uh, um, uh, frustrated uh, if your performance is not very good. You need to feel um, scared if you think you're going to do a bad job, right? Like you just have to move towards all of those um, aversive experiences if you want to achieve that thing in the long term that you care about. And so I don't know why we do it. We must be crazy, right? But there's something larger, something bigger and positive that, that we get out of that. Maybe it's a sense of adventure. Maybe it's making the most out of your life. Maybe it's overcoming challenges. Something verbally constructed that's really, really, really meaningful that you do, I guess, from a functional psychological standpoint, you turn the pain into those values. Um, awesome. And another thing I, I was thinking about in all of the stuff that you've talked about with the work that you've done and, and the, the diffusion exercises and whatnot, one thing I like to think about when we're, we're asking these challenging questions is um, where, where does this not apply? And one thing I've found really challenging is you take these things where you really, you want to, um, you want to look at, at people, all people as human beings that have these experiences and then say, wait, what, what about people who are like serial killers? Does this work with people who do terrible things and that sort of thing? Could you yeah. speak to that a little bit as well? Yeah, sure. Uh, so a couple different pieces here. The first piece is um, I'm in general not too concerned about um, explaining the one out of the 10,000 phenomenon. If the other, you know, 9,999 are pretty solid, then I'm not, you know, that's not my area of specialty. So like the one serial killer, I'm not too worried about it, really, honestly. And not to say that it's not relevant. Something's going on with those people, and it's extremely interesting, right? Um, but it's also maybe not the most fruitful place to spend your time because 
what you know do you want to help one person or do you want to help the other 10,000 you know uh, just in terms of sort of fruitfulness of effort um, but I but I will also say taking a pragmatic approach is a really important thing that I've learned from behavioral science um, and that is concept or a procedure or an analysis whatever it is that you're doing um, is only meaningful if it's useful and it's only meaningful to the extent that it's useful. So you might find something like this is really, um, diffusion techniques are really useful in you know, folks in Western culture uh, trying to get them to do challenging things that they care about. It's possible that there's other cultures where it's already baked into the culture, so it wouldn't really be helpful. Yeah, it's by no means universal. And it's by no means universally useful. Um, it needs You need to take a pragmatic approach. And the other uh, core concept, I think, is flexibility. And so probably like some listeners might be taking away from this that I just think everything needs to be like extreme and tough and suffer and, you know, and like, yeah, maybe a lot, you know. And also sometimes you got to just relax, you know, lay on the couch, eat some Cheetos, watch TV, you know, take a rest, you know, not everything has to be insane. Um, and so that's sort of having, ha- having a little more flexible, a little more pragmatic view like if you want to have a balanced life that's meaningful that's really lived uh, in pursuit of your values you can't be stuck on any particular rule like always suffer or never suffer right either one of those rules are going to make life uh, I think less effective in achieving what you care about I was wondering and I don't know if you have any thoughts or if you've considered I mean we know within our culture there have actually been a lot of approaches that maybe have some share some similar ideas. Um, you know, you think of like the secret or, you know, anything Tony Robbins kind of says, you know, where do you kind of see how those things align and then where do you see how this kind of work differs? Yeah. Okay. That's a great question. I love this. Well, uh, so I haven't been sciencing this podcast up too much today. Uh, everything that I have said actually comes from scientific research, but I've been intentionally talking about it in lay terms um, because that's just kind of more fun and I think it'll be more accessible to a general audience. Um, but that that's the first difference right there is cognitive diffusion isn't a theory that someone made up to be inspirational. It comes from a lot of research. There's a couple hundred published research studies that have included cognitive diffusion as part of the active treatment components that have produced meaningful behavior behavior change. So there's actual real evidence that it works. Um, It's a real thing. It's not just a theory. Um, So that's one thing that separates it from a lot of other uh, perspectives. Um, But I will say, I will say that, um, you know, and I'm no expert on Tony Robbins. I've never written, read, uh, read one of his books or been to one of his seminars, but I think I kind of get some of the idea of positive thinking, that kind of stuff. And the secret, I, if I understand it correctly, I didn't read it, but, you know, if you manifest things within your mind, they're going to happen, kind of something like that. On one level, that's kind of the opposite of what I'm saying. That's almost saying that the mind is so powerful that if you just think something enough, you can make it real. And I'm saying the opposite of that. The mind is so powerless that it can't make you do anything. You should do what you want to do. Do what you care about in life, even while your mind is screaming other things at you. Um, So in a sense, it's the opposite. But I'll bet in terms of practical implementation, it might actually be kind of similar. I'll bet a lot of the people who read The Secret and follow that probably are, when they have a negative thought, they probably do try to take that you know, not too seriously, and they probably do focus on other positive thoughts, which that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm not necessarily saying don't focus on positive thoughts. You certainly can. But if you're only focusing on positive thoughts in order to avoid the negative thoughts, that's where it might be tricky. Because again, we know the harder you try to avoid something, a thought, the more it's part of your mental experience. Is it always the case that being fused with a particular thought is always going to be somehow uh, an, uh, an 
negative outcome on your life? Or is, could yeah, it be the case that sometimes you. fusion, it leads to good things? Yeah, thank you for asking that question because I hate it when you get too excited about one particular thing and then it's as though you're selling that as sort of the end all be all to everything, right? No, no, of course not. So, so yeah, of course, being fused with a particular thought and really rigidly following that thought could be extremely useful under certain circumstances. Um, for example, if you're, you know, again, like in a survival situation and you need to keep walking to get back to the car or you're going to die of thirst, or something, it probably is useful to just keep thinking, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking, and don't be flexible about that. Be rigid, keep going, or you're going to die. You know what I mean? Uh, there, so there probably are, um, and you know, uh, let's say you're studying. Like if you really need to just keep studying for a long time, it might be helpful to just keep having the same thought. I got to keep going. I can't stop. I got to keep going. Um, so there certainly are times when rigidly following a particular thought can be adaptive and useful. And I think what's important is going back to that issue of sort of being pragmatic about it and being flexible, that maybe even the ideal circumstance would be learning how to kind of even uh, maybe bring up and use some rigidity when it's useful, you know? And then when you notice, you know what, maybe this isn't so useful, bring in some of that cognitive diffusion. So it's almost a self-monitoring, sort of self-awareness, mindfulness, new habit that you're uh, training to kind of just notice what your mind's doing. And if it's working, great, don't mess with it, right? Uh, but if it's not working so great, maybe try some of this diffusion stuff. Is there any, so is there any last things that we didn't hit on real quick? Like uh, at all? No, I guess I would just say um, for folks that are int more interested in learning more about uh, diffusion, uh, I would recommend for them to uh, go to Amazon or Google and just put in acceptance and commitment therapy. And that's sort of the area of psychological research that is most relevant to this work. And there's a ton of books out there, uh, self-help books for people that want to um, just live more valued, more effective lives. Um, and then also uh, academic and practical books for people who are in helping professions uh, so that they can integrate some of this into what they do, whether it's nursing or psychology or medicine or uh, behavioral science, whatever it is. Perfect. Yeah. And we'll also include uh, some links for any professionals that happen to be listening, looking for things like practice and that, because I know you have some upcoming speaking engagements and trainings there, right? That's right. Absolutely. And eventually, and I, and just since this is like my, my scientific home, I have to give a plug to the science of behavior analysis, which is where all of this originally came from. Uh, originally started by BF Skinner, but it's evolved a lot since then. Um, and so, yeah, that's sort of the scientific, sort of the, the corner of psychology that all of this originally came from and continues to be developed in. Cool. Yeah. So that's, that's our, our episode for the week. Uh, can't be more thankful for like your time. Really yeah. appreciate it. Thank, Thank you so you. much I for really being appreciate here. appreciate it. It's been fun. All right, Miranda, so happy to have you on as a uh, participating in this. So thank you for being here and I'm helping, glad to have been helping here. to lead that and whatnot. So, all right. Well, I think that we, that about wraps it up. Yes. With that said, we have, uh, Abraham, Miranda and myself, Rhino. We're out. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by ABAI's Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group and our amazing listeners. If you like what you heard, consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Anything helps, and we are continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. 
Why We Do What We Do is Abraham, Ryan O, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brucier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Brendan Bohr does our episode art. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.